Welcome to Rise Seattle Podcast, a podcast about Seattle, the people, their stories, and Seattle's future. Here's your hosts, Phil Greeley and Tyler Davis-Jones. Morning, Phil. How's it going, Tyler? I'm good. There's no rain outside, although it was raining this morning. Uh, this is not a weather podcast, so I don't know why every single time I talk about the weather. <laughs> Anyways, um, fun yeah. fact, you're from Nashville. I am. I'm going to Nashville. And I am also going you to Nashville. You just happen to be there at the same time. Exact so same even time. Even though we see each other a lot for the podcast and our business, uh, we are going to see each other in Nashville, apparently. We are. We're going to get drinks and hang out, and I'm going to show you what it's like, uh, how the South does it. Can't wait. You You better not wear cowboy boots and you better not have a cowboy hat. I have neither. So okay, good. I'll I'll be good. Excellent. Sounds good. Okay. Tell us about our guest today. Yeah. So today we interviewed Andrea Dunlop. Uh, She is a writer, local writer here in Seattle. And uh, she's a a published, published author, published author. So Mm -hmm. it's not like she writes a blog and she calls herself a writer. She like straight writes for a living. Um, and it was really fun. We just, we talk a lot about uh, the Seattle writing scene. We talk about her recent book that she just released. And uh, yeah, it was a great interview. Really enjoyed it. Absolutely. The writing process is something I kind of geek out on. That was my, that was my thing in college and high school was, was English. I'm an English major. Phil, did you want to write a book? Do you I have st- a book inside you? I have a book somewhere deep inside me. Yeah, What's it going to be called? I don't know. I don't know. Philosophies <laughs> no, with that's Phil, Phil Dunphy. Yeah, yeah, that is okay. Right. But you are a real estate agent, so it works out. That's true. Yeah. But hey, it, we enjoy talking to her. We hope you enjoy listening to what she has to say. And um, yeah, give it a listen. Andrea, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having yeah, me. Yeah, we're we're here with it's Dunlop. Correct? It is Dunlop. Andrea yes. Dunlop is who yes. we're here with. Andrea, you are an author and a social media consultant. I am. You have two published works at least. Yes, and a third novel on the way, okay. also for Matria, oh. coming in February. All right. Beautiful. So uh, your first novel was Losing the Light, and you recently released a an e book, I guess. A novella. A novella. Yep. Um, called Broken Bay. Yes. I bought it yesterday. I had plans to read it last night, and then I felt... I, I didn't even start it. I just... I didn't get to it, so I apologize, but... That is okay. I'm going on a trip, so it's my airplane read now. But welcome. <laughs> Thank we you go. for joining us. Absolutely. We'd Thank love to talk about both me. of those things. Um, well, let's start with a little context. So you live in Seattle. I do. How did you get here? Where do you live? How long have you been here? So I grew up in Woodenville, okay. which has changed a lot the since burbs. I was growing up there. Yes, it was It was actually very much the boonies when I yeah. was growing up mm. there. And now it's something people refer to as wine country, Yes, which I find fascinating and hilarious. A lot of urban farms there, yes, too. Yes, there's a lot of very fancy things going on there. Rent the um, limo, do the wine tours. Yeah, yeah, and so none of that was happening when I was growing up there. There was Chateau Saint-Michel mm-hmm. and Red Hook, which I mm. hear is closing. Cap Hill. Which yeah, they're headed that way. Breaks my heart. Um, mm, it's a great location. It out there. is. Yeah, yeah. I so think. I think all of the <clears throat> cyclists are going to be super sad. Yes. That, well, right? my husband Derek and I really like to go right. ride our bikes out there in the summer, and so he's. I he. I had to sort of talk him down the le- off the ledge on that one, but <laughs> it's it's really sad for me because mm-hmm. I grew up there, and they used to be just sort of this. You know, there was nothing else out there. It was Chateau Saint Michel and Red Hook, and that was sort of what the whole area was mm. about. So those. I mean, it is a real staple. It's been there for a long time. When I heard rumors that. Rainier's potentially thinking about picking that up. Okay, and like good. They should. Kind of creating, 
creating a micro brew because they're trying to get back into that micro brew scene mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so who knows? But the free beer tour was amazing, right? Well, Did it's, you ever it's like take five it? bucks now? Or, oh, okay. yeah, you have to you have to pay. Dang! To when I took it, it was free and it was pretty much un- mm-hmm. nonstop beer as much as you wanted, but you had to take it in little two ounce glasses. Right. Wow. Yeah. Oh, I don't think, yeah, I, I actually haven't done that because when I was growing up there, of course I was yeah. underage. So right. Okay. <laughs> I, I left the Red Hook tour many times a little too tipsy. So. <laughs> All right. So you grew up in Woodenville. Yeah. So I grew up in Woodenville and then I went to school in Southern California. I went to the University of Redlands, which is actually a really popular little school for Northwest people to go to. I think the sunshine just mm. gets us all down there. So that was wonderful. And then I, moved to New York City after college. I lived there for about six years. And then I moved back here right at the end of 2009. And then I've been in Seattle ever since. Wow. That's great. What neighborhood do you call home? Green Lake. Green Lake. Yes. All right. So that is where I've lived for the last couple of years with my husband. And before that, I was in Lower Queen Anne. Okay. Yeah. Great. So uh, looking back on, you know, living in Woodenville, I'm, I'm imagining you probably took a trip to the big city of Seattle every once in a while. Yeah, it um, really felt that way. And, you know, it's yeah. about a 45-minute drive. Yeah, it's a decent so drive. It, yeah, I mean, it's it was a it was a big, it was a trip. It was right. a day. It was a, you know, you didn't just go down there for yeah. for a couple of hours. So what have you seen uh, change over that time frame? Just number of people, amount of traffic? Oh, like. really everything. I, I certainly think everyone's complaints about the, the traffic are well-founded. Um, you know, and I've, I've been, it was interesting because though I grew up here, coming back to Seattle and living in the city, it did feel like moving to a new place in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly I'm closer to my family than I was, which is really nice. My parents live over in Bellevue now. Um, so yeah, I, but it really, it, it also just felt like living in a new place because I'd never lived in the city. I'd never lived there as an adult. I'd never had a job there. Right. It was very different than than having grown up in the suburbs. So it right. felt both, both new and familiar, which was which was really nice. Cool. When, when you were in uh, New York, were you doing social media and writing? I actually what? worked. I was always writing. Okay. Um, so that's been sort of a lifelong thing. But the, uh, you know, I wasn't getting paid to write at that right. point, which is yeah. <laughs> a notable difference. Um, but I was actually working in publishing. So oh, when cool. I moved to New York, I uh, worked for Random House the whole time I was there. So, I, well, well, I got a, I worked as a temp for about six months and then got a temp job at Random House and then managed to get dreadful assistant job there uh, in a production department and then after that became a publicist at Doubleday which was which was great fun for a few years so um, so yeah so that's what I was doing there and then when I came back to Seattle I worked for a company called Kim Ricketts book events which was Kim Ricketts was a wonderful book person here she was very well known even outside Seattle and actually I got introduced to her by a New York colleague, not anybody in Seattle. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. When I moved back to Seattle, everyone said, oh, Kim Ricketts, you have to meet her. So she's wonderful. She actually passed away a number of years ago. Oh, and the community, the book community here is definitely still feeling that loss, actually. Mm. And um, so I worked for her company for about a year and then went on to work for a book production company um, that's local to Seattle. And then about, um, I would say, the middle of last summer, I went freelance. So, wow, yeah, that's great. That's so take us through that. <laughs> yeah, take us through that transition because I feel like published author is one of those careers or jobs that a lot of people look up to. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like rock star guitar hero. You're like, <laughs> yeah. how do you get there? You know, like how do you do that? So you are always writing. You mentioned, mm-hmm. but how do you take that from a hobby or a, a passion to 
money, you know, to a job. <laughs> um, well, or just to be published, you know? Yeah. So definitely that was always, that was a lifelong aspiration. I think yeah. that's pretty common when right. you're talking to novelists, different stories sometimes for nonfiction folks that are working on something like a business book or a memoir or something that's more tied to current events. I think then they sort of have a reason and then they write a book. I think when you're a novelist or a poet or, you know, any kind of fiction writer, you, the reason for writing the book is just because you want to write. Mm -hmm. And that's something that for a lot of us has always been with us. So yeah, you know, it's sort of had, had the early interest and then studied it in college and then, um, you know, was always working on, was always really drawn to novels. I never was able to, Broken Bay is actually the shortest thing I've ever managed to write that was complete, um, you know, and that's 20,000 words. So it's never a short story writer, just couldn't manage it. It always ended up being the first chapter of a novel. Um, so yeah, so I was always, always working on it. And then, you know, sort of moved to New York with this idea of that's the thing that one does when they mm. want to be a writer. And that turned out to be, you know, sort of wrongheaded in some ways, but really, um, you know, really turned out to be a great education in terms of that I got a job in publishing and book publishing. And that mm. taught me so much about the industry, which has certainly put me in good stead to be a, to be a professional now novelist, um, that the book industry is very Byzantine and confusing and strange mm -hmm. and has undergone, you know, the biggest changes in yeah. its entire history, really, in the last 10 years. I think the biggest change before this that compares is really the invention of the Gutenberg Press. I'm not yeah. even kidding when yeah. I say that. It's, yeah. it's been huge sea changes um, in the time that I've been in the industry, which is 13 years now in various parts. Mm -hmm. um, so that certainly really helped me get my head around the way that things work. Um, and, you know, I certainly, I have some connections that have been helpful. That was not as directly helpful, mm -hmm. I think, as I'd hoped. I sort of thought, oh, you know, yeah, you, and I think a lot of people have this misconception about getting a book published. Like, you have to have an in, you have to know people. That's not really necessarily true. I think, actually, the education of being in publishing helped me more than any direct connection. I met my agent through the suggestion of a friend who knew her via Twitter. Mm. So that was not any connection that came right. from New York. Yeah. That was you know, so um, I had two agents previously. I had tried with two other books to get published. So really, it's just getting published is a lot about resilience and withstanding a ton of rejection. Mm. And if you're not ready to do that, then you probably want to find something else to yeah. do with your time. Did so, you? Did you? Yeah. Sorry, Tyler. Did you ever think about in, in that waiting process of? Because you you mentioned the the change in the last ten years where mm -hmm. there's self publishing now. Sure. Um, I there's guess a, a form of, of that options. would be Kindle publishing through yeah. Amazon. So did you ever feel like going that route with some of your? Well, I actually my sort of little secret is that I did. Um, I did it not very enthusiastically, which is a guaranteed way to make sure that it won't be a success. <laughs> I had a novel that I. Uh, had an agent for when I was 26. That was really sort of one of my first things that I had, had really completed. Um, I had a great agent, but we weren't able to sell it. And that was very, very disappointing. Um, that was sort of the last thing that happened with my writing career before I left New York. And then I sort of, you know, just decided to move back here. And I'd considered going to grad school, which I'm glad I didn't do, but um, obviously is a great, great move for some people. Um, 
And so if, with that novel, I, I had a little trouble letting it go because I'd worked so hard on it. And so I, I was writing for this women's website at the time called The Gloss, and I was just doing a weekly column for them. And so I thought, I sort of pitched it to them, what if I sort of did it in serial? Because it was a time when, you know, a lot of people were experimenting with different things. And I sort of wanted to get in on the experimentation. And the thing that I love about what self-publishing has brought to the industry as a whole is that self-published authors have done a lot of really innovative things mm. in terms of marketing. And so I right. always sort of look to them to see, okay, what might, how might this translate to being a traditionally published author? Um so, you know, I think that because they have to be innovative, because they don't have any kind of, um, you know, any kind of like big sort of machine behind them. Right. Well, um, no red tape to say, no, don't do that. Right, idea, exactly. Yeah. And they don't have anybody that sort yeah. of, you know, a lot of, and I can get into this later, but a lot of, you know, a lot of publishing is still run by, there's a lot of women in publishing. Most of my colleagues have always been women, but they're, and a lot of times younger women, mm -hmm. but the people who are, you know, in the c in the older white men, no. all older white men. Yeah. Um, you know, surprise, surprise. It's and like that in pretty much every industry. <laughs> yes. it seems like. So yeah, yeah, in every industry in the world, it's like this, and it's not. There's no difference in publishing. I think the only reason that that sort of stands out in publishing is because literally almost everyone else who works there is female. Mm. So, um, so it's very the dis the disparity is very noticeable. Mm. Um, that people are not sort of coming up through the ranks and then getting those jobs. So that's sort of a whole other issue unto itself. But that does affect the way that publishing deals with things like technology and social media. Mm. It's, you know, not exactly on the cutting edge. So I think that, you know, that way self-publishing is really can be instructive. But anyway, sort of back to my own trajectory. So I did, you know, I, I made it into an ebook. I put it out there, you know, in chapters on this website I was writing for. And so, you know, it got a little bit of attention. But I think for me... And this is not to say that nobody else should do it. You know, I think if you're, if you want to self-publish, do that and do that because it's what you really want to do, not because it's a plan B, because it doesn't make a good plan B. It's its own system. It has its own mm. way of doing things. You have to do things a certain way to make it successful. It works really well for some genres, like romance is one in particular where people are seeing a lot of real success mm. with self-publishing. <laughs> I'm not a romance writer. So that, you know, that's sort of the within the genre that I write in or the sort of different, which has about, you know, 17 different names because people are always trying to figure out what to call it. Um, but that, uh, you know, it, I haven't seen anybody succeed writing stuff that's like what I write. So that's, mm. that's sort of a good reason to, to not pursue it. But also because I had dreamed since I was a kid of being a published author. Yeah. And for me, that meant having a certain experience and that meant having an agent and an editor and a publisher and having that imprimatur of a publisher and, you know, being in bookstores and all of these other things. And in some ways, those things are trappings, but in some ways they're real and mm. they were really meaningful to me. Totally. And so I can say that having that experience versus when I finally, you know, so between then and the <laughs> first book getting published, I had another project that I worked on with... Um, a sort of reality star-ish person that oh please to do, do tell <laughs> who who was it no one that you guys would have heard of um and i don't want to know i watch a lot of reality tv so <laughs> you probably didn't it was one season of a, of a bravo show um but so that was that project was a collaboration it was a complete disaster um never went anywhere <clears throat> So that was that was sort of um, that was my probably first and last experience with collaborating on a book. I sort of thought this is a 
bad idea for me. Um, So after that happened, then I went back to Losing the Light, which was a book that I'd actually started writing when I was in college and had been through many iterations over the years. And and so I thought, this is, you know, my most beloved project. I sort of was like, okay, back to sort of ground zero. I've tried these different things. I've tried the sort of weird celebrity angle. I've tried the, you know, self-publishing route. Neither of those are right for me. What's the book I love most? You know, let's get back into that. And so I got that out, really polished it up actually hired an editor because the thing about being a first-time novelist is that you your work has to be pretty much perfect mm. when you it has to be as perfect as you can possibly get it mm-hmm. when you are looking for an agent and then when that agent is trying to help you find an editor because you're a totally unknown quantity if you send them something that just has potential they don't know that you're going to reach that so you mm. make a pretty bad business bet um so i think that's you know that's a big piece of advice to to Did- writers so I, I've heard in the past uh, from previous friends who've like attempted to write or have a desire to write a book, um, but do uh, do publishers look at your uh, following, right? Like if you have a if you have a platform of some capacity, does that make it more desirable or a better bet potentially? Well, I think. You know, in terms of the, from my perspective and from the, you know, I obviously know a lot of publishing professionals, including the ones I work with on my own books, but a lot of other, you know, just friends that I've known from from working in publishing. So for nonfiction authors, it's absolutely crucial. So if you're a nonfiction author, what you actually send into agents and then what they send on to publishers is book proposal. Mm. So it's essentially sort of a business plan for your book. And uh, one part of that proposal that has to be really compelling is the marketing section. Mm. And so you have to sort of prove that there's an audience for your book because that's really what it hinges upon. That's not to say that they don't care what it is on the page, but it really, that is going to make a much bigger difference if you're a nonfiction author. Interesting. Um, If you are a fiction writer, it helps, and it certainly helps to demonstrate that you have some savvy about social media and things like that, and that you're going to be an active participant in marketing your own work because that is absolutely something that publishers are looking for. So I think that helps, but you're not expected to sort of mm. come in with the numbers that you right. would if you're a okay. You need 120,000. Right, right. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah. they'll certainly love it if yeah. you have that. Yeah, that certainly demonstrates it's a new audience, that. Yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah. And that, that you're, that'll, that'll be an added bonus. But I think that really they're looking for they want it to be on the page and it has to be ready to go. So really what you have to do as a first-time novelist is prove that you can write a compelling novel. That's great. Yeah. Okay, so uh, anyone who knows me personally, I talk to Phil about this way too often probably, (laughs) Uh, but I am am very... compelled, inspired by obsessed, like, obsessed maybe, uh, by the hero's journey, right? Mm-hmm. We, we love, I love story. I think through my love of loving story, Phil has caught the bug a little bit. <laughs> um, but really what we try to do with this podcast is to position, you know, you as the person who is, we're, we're interviewing, you're the hero, right? In this story. Um, excuse me. You're the guide actually. Right. Yeah. Wow. I don't even know my own thing that I'm obsessed with. So you're the guide. I was going to say, story. I read the yeah. notes. I was like, I thought I was the guide. Right, right, right. You're the guide <laughs> in the story. To be the hero. And our listeners are ultimately the hero, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're showing, um, you're Yoda, right? Mm-hmm. And, our, and our listeners are Luke, right? Okay. So you are showing um, 
our listeners uh, the way. I love that you think and, as a 35 year old woman that that metaphor will automatically well, resonate with me. Well, you've seen Star Wars. <laughs> Come on. No? Zero? What? Well, Get, get okay. off of our podcast so right know, now and I go know. watch Star Wars. My husband almost did the same thing about our marriage. Um, <laughs> so the problem with, of course, I've seen bits and pieces. The problem is when my husband tried to get me to watch the Star Wars right. movies, he started with one of the one of the newer movies, mm. but it was an older story, and it was the one with what's it, Jar Jar Binks? Oh, I think. that's a bad place to that's start. A, that, yeah, that's, yeah. See, that's, so I that's think actually, we can blame Derek. I'm gonna blame, we can blame Derek. We're gonna blame Derek yeah. on this. Derek, yeah. bad form, buddy. Yeah. So but. he's, and I think he realized his mistake pretty quickly. Yeah. Because my face was just. I don't get this. Is, so you've seen you? the Hunger Games. Hunger Games. I have seen the Hunger Games. Okay. Yes. Perfect. Okay. That's okay. a better metaphor. So, yes, so, so Hunger to, Games. You have Katniss Everdeen, right? Lovely. One of my favorite literary heroes. Right. of all time really brilliant but definitely of the modern era oh so good yeah, right so good complex like, great way to convert someone to feminism i yes. would say yes um and then you have the drunken um uh what's his name hamish 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 right you're hamish you you've you've had less to drink this morning probably than <laughs> that Hamage. you're aware of right well, okay, that's right not exactly true. I'm not this metaphor is going listeners. way too far <laughs> Anyways, um, okay. yeah. So, so like from that perspective, you're. Can you're, I be the Lenny Kravitz character? Yeah. Oh, he that's a that's a way like a better guy because he's sort of the like center. That is that's way you know, better of a guide. Yeah. Man, wow. not as much baggage. Yeah. Okay, see, We're you get this whole concept. Yeah, we really are. <laughs> All that to be said, um, your newest book, uh, which is the newest novella, excuse me, um, is a seems to be a compelling story about suspense and excitement and drama, um, what would you say, like, how do you approach story? Um, what does that look like to you? Uh, do you have, do you follow the hero's journey typically where you have, you know, a hero who meets a guide and goes through all these trials and then basically overcomes that thing and then returns victorious? Or is there a, a different way you approach writing? Well, that's a really interesting question. So I will say I don't consciously frame it that way, mm -hmm. but some of, I, have you listened to that, the TED Talk on the hero's journey? I have. I, that's Hour? one of my I'm absolute sure you favorite. Have, yeah. Yeah. Are you so, kidding me? Come on. Yeah. I mean, yeah, of course, yeah. if you're into this. So I, I actually, what I found so compelling about that was in that, in that, um, at least I listened to the Ted Radio Hour podcast yeah. that had three different, you know, the three different yeah, talks. Of course. And they were I, talking I went about back and actually watched the whole thing. So I'm a dork. <laughs> they, yeah. No, I mean, if it's, if that's your thing, the hero's journey and it is very compelling. And I think that the point that they were making was that basically it's so interwoven into our culture that it's almost impossible to write mm. without using that structure. And so mm -hmm. of course, looking back on anything I've written, you can apply that. And right. it certainly, it certainly, uh, it certainly does fit into that in one way or another. But as I think, I think that's just sort of a, that's the, the fact that I was born and raised in the Western world. And that's sort of so part of our, our way right. of storytelling. Um, so I think, you know, not maybe in as direct a way as sort of Star Wars and the Hunger Games and those ones that really have that, you know, that, that's, that, that very distinct sort of the call to action. Yeah. And, um, but I think that, you know, with Broken Bay, really that came out of, I got married last summer. Um, we got married in August. And so I wrote it while I was planning my wedding, ah. which was its own sort of arduous hero's <laughs> journey. <laughs> um, but I, that one came out of, you know, and it was, it's a very different process writing the novella than it was writing, has, has been writing any of the novels I've worked on. 
mostly because it just was so much shorter. It was a lot more sort of fun and lighthearted. It wasn't, you know, I didn't take it as, as seriously. I didn't write as many drafts as I write of a novel. So I didn't sort of get in, dig in in this way that mm. I that I do with um, that I do with my novels. And so it was sort of, it was a bit of an experiment to see if I could even write something that was shorter and that was complete. Um, so I had a lot of fun with it. And I, it really just was born out of my thinking about weddings a lot last summer because I was planning my own and having been to a lot, being, you know, in my mid thirties at this point, been to a bazillion weddings and I'm sort of obsessed with things <clears throat> things going wrong around mm. weddings, uh, which is not because I'm just a nasty person that <laughs> wants to have the shot in front of seeing a wedding go wrong. But I think as a writer, it, the fact that everything around weddings is focused on them being perfect, mm-hmm. there's that seems to me the best possible way to just ask the universe for trouble mm. is to just talk about how something has to be perfect and right. well-organized and well-executed and... You know, I admire maybe nobody more than my wedding planner, who is a Seattle person, Michelle Bernard. She is fabulous. If you're planning a wedding, go hire her immediately. Okay. It'll be we'll the link best her up thing in the show notes. Yeah, I was say. Yes, you should. Although she will not, I have tried many times to get her to spill the beans and tell me like, what's the worst thing you've ever, you know, you've ever had a bride do? And she's, oh no, they're all been wonderful. They're all beautiful and um, amazing. But she's, yeah, but she's fabulous, and she, you know, I mean, the the, ex, the sort of military precision mm. of weddings and that she brought to our wedding was amazing and much appreciated. But so nothing went spectacularly wrong at my wedding, I should say that, or in or at my bachelorette party. But I'm sort of the, you know, just as a novelist, I think I'm obsessed with the idea of, you know, you have this thing, the a wedding and all of the things that lead up to the wedding that are so, they're so potentially fraught because mm. you have all these people from different parts of your life coming together right. that aren't necessarily going to mesh. You have people bringing their own weird feelings and baggage right. to weddings, which they absolutely do. And then you have the conceit that everything has to go perfectly. And that's just the most perfect recipe for chaos. Mm. And so... I just was that's and that's a good sort of story came right? from. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, every so, great story has conflict. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> and so I had, yeah, it wouldn't be, you know, if I just wrote about a bachelorette party where like everyone had fun and it was got the along best, and right? you know, no. nobody got too drunk and like that would be We want to hear puking story. stories and you accidentally picked up a cop's yeah. gun <laughs> and you're standing on a, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a good story. Yeah. yeah so compelling. there is there is um there is a lot of that in the story that it's, you know, it's uh it's five girls that go to five women who go uh, who go to a fictional San Juan Island. Um, uh, and it, this was also my first time writing about the Pacific Northwest, which was wow. really fun for me because it's a place I have deep love for. And Is it called the San Juan Islands or is it like... They say it's in the San Juan Islands. Islands. Change the name. <laughs> no, so I invented an island called Walker Island, okay. but it is in the San Juan Islands. And so there are sort of the recognizable you know, things about that. And they go to, you know, they rent this big house there and then they go for a weekend sort of destination bachelorette party, which has become incredibly popular to sort of, that's the new thing that you do is you go away for a weekend with your bridesmaids or your groomsmen. It's getting more and more expensive. It is, you know, yeah. And so that, um, you know, but that's something that that both my husband and I did. And I think that was, that was something we were were both really glad that we did because it is nice to sort of spend that time with your Mm -hmm. friends before you're sort of going through this big, you know, this big moment in your life. So these five girls get together and they're staying in this house that turns out to be, have some creepy things going on in the house. So that comes up right away. And then about halfway through the bachelorette party, they lose the bride. She goes missing. Uh And then a storm rolls in. So you've got, 
them, you know, in this situation with each other that's very tense. And some of them know each other, but some of them don't. And so, you know, sort of strange secrets start to come up and things get sort of worse and worse. And so, yeah, a lot of drama packed into 90 pages. That's great. (laughs) Yeah. Is it like a hangover style as well? Like, do they, you know? Yeah, it's a little bit, you know, we pitched it as Bridesmaids meets Lost. Nice. Um, but I think there okay. are some echoes definitely of the hangover as okay. well. And I love that Bridesmaids has sort of kicked off a trend of having some great sort of movies about women behaving yeah, badly around absolutely. weddings because there's so much good fodder there. <laughs> yes. And there's absolutely, I mean, you know. Boys should not have all the fun in movies, and Agreed. they have for way too long. So, so I'm excited about that as a cultural moment. We, we support that. <laughs> so 100%. I wanted to get in on that as yeah. a cultural moment. <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay, so to geek out on the writing process for a second. Yes. When you mentioned that writing your novel and the novella are maybe slightly different processes, but yeah. what's the? Um, I guess first, how do you start? And then my guess would be that the first draft is like one of the hardest <laughs> moments of the process. Is that- well, so I think all parts of the process have their own hard bits and they're parts that are really, really enjoyable. So in terms of where I get the ideas, that's always a really hard one to answer only because I don't know exactly. It, I can't tie it to, although my novels are always, and I think everyone who's a writer you know you're you're picking up stuff from from your life and from the world around you but it's not as though I have sort of a moment where it's just a flash like aha there's my next novel you know walking down the street I usually come up with the idea for my next book while I'm writing the previous Mm. one Mm. so that's a good reason (laughs) to keep at it so I find that as long as I'm working and sort of um, keeping that part of my myself sharp that it usually the next one just comes along and then I get sort of excited to write it, which makes me more motivated to finish whatever I'm writing mm-hmm. on so I can kind of move on to that. So that's kind of how I how I keep the, the wheel spinning, as it were. Um, but it, first drafts are, they're, they can be so much fun because you sort of write them with abandon and I you write them knowing that you're going to rewrite you're, I write them knowing that I'm going to rewrite probably every word. Mm. Um, and it's just sort of the to get the characters on the page, to get the story out, to see what comes of it. I have usually some ideas of where it's going, but I'm not a big plotter. I don't mm. make a detailed outline or anything along those lines. Um, I actually, for when I sold my second book to my publisher, when I sold my second novel to my publisher, we sold it based on 50 pages and an outline, which was very different than the first book, obviously, as I mentioned, that had to be so perfectly polished. And so that actually writing that outline was a huge challenge because I'd just never done it before. Um, But in general, you know, sort of as I'm writing, and I already had a draft of the novel at that point, so I was sort of pulling from existing material. But so first drafts can be really fun. You have to just really let go and just, I just write Mm. some of the worst ugliest sentences and you just have to just keep it moving. So I think it's a very unselfconscious mm. exercise that you have to sort of get in that mindset of just get down the page. Nobody ever has to see it, mm. um, you know, and just, just get some pages in that manuscript so that you have something to go back and work with. I feel like it's like dancing in your room in your underwear or something like that, yeah. right? Like it's just, you kind of just, I mean, that's a weird metaphor, yeah. but at the same time, it's also just like, if that ah. works for you, <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah, it's just kind of yeah. just putting yourself out there, which yeah. is, which that's, that could be scary. Yeah. I've, I've personally, uh, and I am not a writer in any way, but I, I, I blog. We're all writers, Tyler. <laughs> We're all, Facebook made us all writers <laughs> is really what happened, but 
true. No, actually, email did it before. Email I was hearing it, from yeah, people well, who, yeah, who were writers before that. Very true. So uh, <laughs> sign up for our email newsletter. No one wants that. Let's be honest. Anyways, um, derailed. Uh, yeah, so... What was I? Where was I? I going? think you were talking about dancing in your underwear. Dancing in my yeah. underwear. Oh no, 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 the editing process. Yes. Right. I would imagine that's probably one of the one of the most difficult. At least it has been for me in the past. Because like you really love this sentence, or you li- really love this paragraph, and then you feel like I've got to cut it in half, or I've got to like just whittle it down. And like, do you yeah. ever feel like I just don't want to lose that? Ugh. I know some writers really struggle with that. Mm. I actually really enjoy that. Oh, okay. I sort of feel like when I have a draft, when I have a first draft, I know it's a big hot mess. And so first I go back in and edit it. And then, you know, once I turn it over to, you know, one of my friends who's a reader of mm-hmm. mine, or, you know, I have these friends who are, most of them are writers, um, who, who are sort of my first readers that I send yeah. stuff to. And, and uh, also, you know, then my agent and my editor eventually. Then I... So look forward to seeing what they want to cut out. And I actually have not, knock on wood, yet had the experience where someone wanted to get rid of something that I just felt was so precious that I didn't want to let it go. And yeah, so I mean, I really enjoy that process. I think that, you know, writing is very much a collaborative art Mm. and having the right editor is really a joy. And Mm. I love my editor, uh, Sarah Canton is her name from Atria. And my agent also has a very good editorial eye and they, I absolutely think I've been in the industry long enough and have been writing long enough that I appreciate so much what they bring to my work. That's not to say that I will never have a quibble with them (laughs) about, you know, a sentence or a character, but mostly that's been sort of, again, Mm. a real collaboration where I, I go into that process knowing that there's things that need to be improved. Mm. And usually I have questions for them. You know, usually it's sort of like, I know this scene's not working. Like, what, can we talk through this? And so it's usually just more of a a process of kind of talking things through and brainstorming rather than we hate this, you have to get rid of it. And me being like, no, don't do it. And Mm. I think that that's definitely not representative of every writer. And there are some writers that are a heck of a lot more precious about their, you know, that sort of, I'm sure you've heard that sort of kill your darlings metaphor. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, well, not really my darlings. <laughs> like, yeah. like I, I, I want them to be, you know, the best that yeah. they can be. And so the, well, as rigorous as that process is, I'm, right. I'm happy for it. Oh, and that's probably why you are uh, successful. Cause I mean, I, I, I think it's always interesting the parallel, like you watch the Academy Awards mm-hmm. and typically best picture also gets best editor, mm, which I think is really interesting, interesting, right? I have not noticed that before. Yeah, pay attention to that. Okay, um, Stephen King in his memoir, have you read his memoir? Yeah. I, I, I'm ashamed of this, but I have not. Because okay, really everyone good. says that that is one of the best books on writing that's Well, ever, and it's just really yeah. entertaining, but yeah. he talks about the editorial process as like the most important, I think he says 20%. A poignant moment in his life where he wrote an article for a paper and the editor sent it back with like 30% of it crossed out and said, here, this is better or try again sort of thing. And he keeps that as a memento sort of to like yeah. say what you can say in less with less words. But yeah. Yeah. It's important. Yeah. Oh, I mean, look at social media, same thing, right? Like a catchy tagline or a catchy like uh, title of a blog probably needs to be just a few few uh, words. Well, and I think that that's actually, you know, we're talking a little bit about self-publishing earlier. That's one of the chief problems with it Mm. is that those, as much as people can get very (laughs) worked up about sort of agents and editors being the, the, 
the gatekeepers mm-hmm. and people can develop a really sort of contentious feelings about that. But at the same time, they're also, you know, when you're in there, when you're writing your books, they're who protects you from, you know, the, the eventual criticism of, of an audience. And I mean, that's not to say that that no book ever gets through that process without you know, with, without things slipping through the cracks, obviously some really, truly terrible books are published by major publishing houses all the time, mm. you know? Um, so things make it through that process, but it's it's definitely, I'm, I'm happy for the process and I think writers are better off for the process mm, and right. that putting something out there that hasn't been edited and hasn't been sort of seen by anyone else and, has, and no one else has worked on is very unlikely to create a better product. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, let's talk uh, systems and processes. Um, and how you stay motivated. Okay. Because uh, you are uh, similar to us. We're, we're, you know, independently employed. We don't have a boss that's mm-hmm. saying, wake up, make this phone call. Uh, Phil and I were in real estate. Um, so for you, what does that look like? What's your system in the morning? I know when we, when we first sat down, you're kind of saying, oh, I was writing this morning. So is yeah. that just every morning you put on your Bose headphones and you... You know, go to block the out, shed block out the world. Yeah, go to the writing shed. <laughs> yes. Well, we're actually looking. I know you guys are in real estate. We're uh, we're looking for a house right now, ah, and so we uh, yeah, it's exciting, and yeah. also some other emotions. Yes. Um. <laughs> so we're we've actually been looking at place. We're like, oh, the perfect place would have you know the man cave for my husband to go yell at the television while he's watching sports, and then the little writing cottage. Right now, we're in an apartment, so that's you know I'm just in the in the second bedroom. Um. But yeah, I I write in the mornings. I've done that for years and years, probably a solid decade now. Um, And I started that actually because I had a very pivotal conversation in my life when I was about, gosh, how old was I? Okay, it was about 25. Um, So I was living in New York at the time, and I met this wonderful woman who is an older Irish writer called Polly Devlin, and she was teaching at Barnard at the time, and she was a friend of one of the authors that I was working with, and so that was an amazing thing about being in New York, because you really did just meet these incredible people, and Mm -hmm. they were sort of everywhere, and so I ended up becoming friends with her, and we had coffee a number of times, and, you know, I was working as a publicist at the time, and she sort of got out of me that I really, my, my big ambition was to be a writer, which I'm sure was probably true for almost every. 25-year-old running around the publishing house. Um, but I had told her about that and she said, okay, well, are you working on anything? And I said, oh yeah, I'm working on this novel and, you know, but I'm not, I'm not making very good progress with it. And she, she said, she kind of asked me a couple questions and about what my routines were. And she said, well, you've got a lot of things working against you. You know, mm. you said, she said, you have this job, which is really, you know, very all-consuming and it's a tough job and uh, you're surrounded by publishing so you're seeing sort of how the sausage is made and that's Mm. that can be kind of terrifying which as much as it was educational it was also intimidating to sort of see things go go well and go wrong and all the sort of things that authors get put through um and she said you know you're also you live in the most distracting city in the world you know you're a young person you're you know running around going to parties and everything and you know not getting any sleep and um and, and she said, you know, and you're terrified. Like, I can just tell just looking at you that you're sort of terrified to sort of take this plunge. And she said, let me tell you that fear is always going to be with you. Mm. That's not going anywhere. So you have to just learn to live with that. And she said, what time do you go to bed at night? And I was kind of like, oh, I don't know, midnight, you know, meaning really probably like 2 a.m. Um, <laughs> and, and she said, and what time do you, you know, get up in the morning to go to work? And of course, it was like the last possible second. And right. I roll out of bed and get a coffee and just, you know, go into work. And she said, well, can you go to bed an hour earlier and get up an hour earlier and write? And I sort of 
oh, well, I guess I could. And I've never been a morning person. This mm. is not, I'm not just a natural morning person. Um, my husband is, he's a freak. He gets up at like 5.30 in the morning on, of his own volition. But I've never been like that. I've always been a night owl. So I said, yeah, I, I guess I could. And she said, she looked me dead in the eye and she said, let me tell you what will happen if you don't. You will be sitting here 10 years from now mm. wondering why you never finished your novel. And that scared the crap out of me. Because that really was my deepest fear yeah. was that I was just going to abandon the ambition of being a writer. Yeah. And well, here I am 10 years from now and I'm, I'm not still wondering mm. why I didn't finish my novel. And I think that that conversation was a really pivotal moment. I was up at, you know, 6.30 in the next morning, which was an ungodly hour for me at the time and, and have been writing in the mornings, you know, as a habit ever since. And, you know, I did finish my first novel. I got an agent. It didn't get published. But that really, I have always held on to that fear that I will quit. Mm. And I think that that's been a really driving force for me. Yeah, holding on to what's at stake. I feel like that's so important. Yeah, yeah. because yeah. I think it's the thing advice. that you that you realize really fast is nobody else cares. The world does not care about your novel no. And it does not care if you fulfill your dreams. Yeah. <laughs> like, really nobody cares. And yeah. so that's, you know, I don't say that in a negative way. I say that because it's like, if you don't care, nobody cares. And I think that's a good thing to hold on to as a writer throughout the process because yeah. it applies to everything. It applies to, you know, when you're trying to get an agent, when you're trying to get a book deal, when you're marketing your work, that you just have to care 100 times more. And you should care 100 times more. And, like, that's your if you want it to be your job, you have to treat it like a job. Yeah. No, it's good. It's good advice. It's great advice for everybody. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, once you have your completed work, um, talk to us about the marketing angle. So you are uh, uh, yes. a freelance um, uh, position you have also as, as a social media consultant mm -hmm. for authors. Is mm -hmm. that correct? Yep. But you do that for yourself, I'm, I'm guessing, as well. Yes, so what I does do. that look like? Um, so, yeah, so my, I, I was kind of laughing when you guys sent me your questions earlier because, and I, I think you guys must have been both working on this document because there was a question about does media help book sales? And then the other one answered, well, of course it does. Let's reframe this question. <laughs> so actually, no, that's a, that question is totally germane on its own. Um, so the question of what sells books is a perennial one. I'm sure it's this way for every industry. I think because book publishing is an art, because it's one of the arts, um, you know, literature, uh, it has maybe an especially fraught relationship with marketing. And so I've certainly known, and I started off at Doubleday, which is a very venerable, relatively literary house. They do some other commercial stuff as well. They publish, you know, people like John Grisham and Dan Brown, mm. but they also publish, you know, Ian McEwen and Margaret Atwood and all these very literary folks. So my background was in the sort of snobby, um, you know, and I say that with love um, because I really love the people I worked with at Doubleday. They were tremendous. I got to work with people like Nan Talese, who was one of the most legendary editors in the business, mm. was this very groundbreaking, you know, female editor. And um, But, you know, that said, there certainly is a lot of, it's a very old school industry. It's New York. That's one of the ways that, you know, the East Coast is very different than the West Coast. And that's one of the ways is there's sort of more, this more kind of traditional heritage, blue blood, Ivy League kind of 
glaze over everything. And so that's right. where still most major publishing houses are in New York. All major publishing houses in the United States are located in New York. So that certainly trickles down through the rest of the process. I think that was really great that I got my start there because that has informed how I look at the rest of the process and where I also think that you know, being on the West Coast has been really reinvigorating because as you, you know, were saying earlier about why you guys have the podcast, there are a lot of really interesting people here and it's very creative, very entrepreneurial. It still has that really sort of frontier mentality, mm-hmm. I think, that that really gives us a different perspective than people yeah. on the East Coast. And so, um, you know, so marketing has always been a bit fraught. And when I was starting my career, it was still, we were just looking at traditional publicity. And so that's all I did was you know, harass the editors at the New York Times Book Review and call NPR and do those kinds of things. So it was a really fun job for a little while, but has an incredibly high burnout rate, which, you know, because it's just, it can be very demoralizing. And so obviously the media over the last 10 years has contracted Mm. hugely when you're talking about the traditional media. So print newspapers and magazines and traditional radio stations and television outlets, especially where it comes to things like books. Um, So... Even if those things worked well, there's not as many of them to be had. And at the same time, you have the explosion of self-publishing. And Mm. I've heard this figure uh, from a colleague of mine who works with a lot of self-published authors that something like 4,000 books are published a day when you factor in. Um, when you factor in self-published titles, so the the glut of books that are out there competing for attention is just mind-boggling. And so I think that's something you have to be really aware of when you're going into marketing. Or just understand what you're up against. You know, that's not to say, like, throw in the towel and go home. Right. And quite frankly, if that does make you want to throw in the towel and go home, maybe you should. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm here to bring a little tough love because I think it's <laughs> it's necessary. I think it's really – I've seen a lot of authors go into this process – um, not knowing what they were up against, mm. and it's not for the best. It's not, they end up really disappointed and with their hopes dashed, and it's just, it's ugly. And I went into it knowing what I was getting in my, myself into, and because of that, I think I've had a lot of fun, and I've been able mm. to really embrace the marketing side, and granted, I'm more interested in the marketing side than most authors, right. because that's what I do, but I also think the more you can have fun with it, the better. So, you know, when I started my career off, we just had a very, very limited set of tools. And why I've really transitioned to working with social media is because that's where a lot of the opportunities are. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one of my favorite things right now that I'm really obsessed with for authors is uh, Bookstagram. Mm-hmm. Do you guys know what I mean no. when I say Bookstagram? So, you know, no. Instagram, obviously. Yes. So, Instagram's become a massive social media platform just all around. And it's become hugely influential for books. And most of the people who are influential on that platform for books are young and female. And so they are a really interesting group. And I've gotten to know a couple of them. Um, you know, one in New York, Natasha Manuso, of a, who has an account called Book Barista. Okay. Um, Book Baristas, excuse me. Um, it's the plural. And then uh, Alyssa Hamilton, who's up in Vancouver, who has an account called Swept Away by Books. And they have these massive followings. Mm. And they have just built it all from scratch. It's incredible. It's the sort of new entrepreneurial style way of to get a book job. Um, you know, Natasha went and transitioned that into a job at Penguin. Um, oh, wow. And so, you know, and Alyssa's trying to do the same thing. So it's this fascinating sort of like 
part of the book marketing world that nothing like that existed right. when I was starting my career. So you're trying or even to get them to post about your book. Oh no, they do. They're they they have already. They're okay, um, nice. yeah. So I, mean, I have. I have ongoing. Oh yeah. Do. So that's what they. That's what they do. Yeah. So, that, so they read that was books. not me mentioning them. So that they, <laughs> they read books. Although that's and then they not post a bad strategy. Yeah. So right. they they, they just are really review. Yeah, too. they're really passionate yeah. readers, and they take beautiful photographs. Obviously, oh. Instagram is a visual medium, so right. it's you know very much based on the you know the the sort of the artistic and it's boy it's harder to take a great picture of a book than than yeah. you would think um, yeah. so they definitely bring a really great sort of visual element to like it and then yeah they laying in a hammock reading the book yeah or, or like the with the cup of coffee or the glass uh, of wine or just really presenting you know the the sort of theories about why bookstagram works because it is now at this point like very much something that publishers and authors are going after wow. um, as they should and that's smart um, but it's you know why it works is that it presents books in this sort of luxurious mm-hmm. setting so it sort of mm-hmm. really gets across that idea of like this is how you're going to relax and this mm. is this is a luxury and this is right. a little mini vacation and right. you know taking pictures of it in a beautiful place or you know just with sort of posed in a cozy chair or mm. you know so it's sort of creating this whole image around it which i think is just so fascinating and brilliant and the thing is about people that are you know younger than us who are as we call them, digital natives, is that they understand this stuff so intuitively mm-hmm. that they're not necessarily having to do the work that we, or certainly any clients of mine that are that are older than I am, have to do to sort of understand how mm-hmm. social media works and why it works the way it does. Um, but that said, they you know they've worked very hard to build up these beautiful accounts. Um, so you know that's just a sort of a one example, but I mean, social media has really become the new way of marketing everything. And so you know, figuring out how that transitions to books and and seeing how that sort of affects sales, and also the interplay between that and the traditional media. Certainly, the traditional media still does have power and influence. And I think in general, when I've seen books do really well, just across the board, um, it's a collective thing. It's not mm. one it's usually not one thing. It's not one place that covered it. It's not one great review. It's that sense that you've seen the book everywhere. So you've yeah. seen it in your favorite bookstore and your friend told you about it and you saw it right. on social media and then you saw it, you know, heard about it on the radio and that sort of, that sense of like that, you know, that sort of those multiple touch points is I right. think, you know, which I think is true for most things, but I think it's definitely true for books. And every time that I ask people, and I'll put this question to you guys as well, mm-hmm. how they found like the last book that they read it's usually a personal recommendation and with social media what's interesting about that is that you can sort of watch that and quantify it and track it in a way that you can't if it's just like two people talking to each other when i love the ability to like if you can't get on the new york times you know with a editorial on the new york times then you can go around that and be on instagram and be on podcasts exactly yeah right yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, there's many ways up the mountain. Yeah, which totally. that was not true before. You know, when right. I was first starting my career, if you couldn't get covered by those powerful media outlets like the New York Times, like a spot on the Today Show or the Colbert Report or the sort of other big ticket items, then your book just sank. Mm. And it was tragic. And I saw uh. a lot of really beautiful really worthy books just not ever connect with an audience because they didn't have the accessibility. Oh, so it's not so that sad. it's not that way now. I mean, yeah. and authors can be very resistant to using social media sometimes because they don't understand it or they just don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. But the truth is there are more tools to reach an audience now. And to me, that's a, sort of a net positive. Yeah. yeah. No, that's good. Hey, Tyler, before you ask our favorite question, well, <laughs> I was going to do a personal recommendation actually oh, cool. about oh. her brand new book that just released. <laughs> So Broken Bay is, you can find it on um, andreadunlop.net. 
You can also find or anywhere it ebooks are sold. Anywhere <laughs> books are sold. Amazon Kindle, uh, Nook, uh, check it out on Amazon. Anywhere you really want to purchase this book, you can. Um, but it's called Broken Bay. It is a novella. And I just figured out what a novella is. <laughs> so I'm excited to read it. Did you look it up on Wikipedia? I did. I did. Uh, go ahead with your question. <laughs> yeah, well, I was... Um, I was mainly curious. You mentioned a few answers ago the the Seattle book community. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? What is there? Is there a writing culture community oh, here? Oh yes! Oh, wonderful! Um, yes. So it's really interesting both how vibrant it is here and how it contrasts with New York. So I, you know, came up in my first jobs in New York and knew a lot of writers and publishing people there, and it's wonderful. Obviously, in New York, very again, very long tradition of books and book publishing, but very competitive, very New York, very aggressive. (laughs) Um, And it's, you know, it's just, it's a lot more sort of cutthroat, which is true of everything in New York versus Seattle. Seattle, I have found to be really wonderful community. We have, I think, if you count sort of the surrounding areas, we have 13 independent bookstores. Yeah. A lot of cities, wow. even major cities, don't even have one. Wow. So the fact that we can support all of that is tremendous. It's wonderful. We have, and the the independent bookstore community is very supportive of local authors. And so that's definitely a relationship that goes both ways. And I love them. Um, Elliott Bay Books, Queen mm-hmm. Anne Books, um, mm-hmm. Third Place Books, all three locations. Love you guys. <laughs> um, but... Uh, you know, in addition to that, we have just a ton of writers who live here. So I'm part of a group called Seattle Seven, which is a nonprofit and literary community that is a sort of a bunch of authors from Seattle. So it started with um, Garstein and Jenny Shortridge, I think, are the two founders. Mm-hmm. And it includes people like Maria Semple, Lori Frankel. So a lot of those sort of big, well-known authors from Seattle are a part of it. Um, I think there are 78 of us now. Oh, wow. So it's a big group, all traditionally published. So that's, Do you guys go you know, to happy hours and talk about your favorite do. book? So <laughs> we do. Um, we, we do a bunch of different things. So there's a couple of different um, – there's a couple of different – like sort of charity-based events um, throughout the year and, you know, literacy advocacy that we do. And then we do sort of get-togethers with each other. And we have a um, we have a, a sort of salon series that we do that's all sort of aimed at helping people understand publishing as an industry. And so, yeah, it's cool. – um, I'm a new member, which is why I'm not maybe as well-versed in, in everything that we do. So I'm sort of still, still seeing. But it's a wonderful group of people and it's – Is it in, like invite-only as well? Like – Yes, I had to be asked. Secret society. <laughs> Are there events or groups that, like if there's an, um, a writer out there in Seattle that's listening to this and wants to be involved with a community and they're not currently, is there... Like, where can you go to happy hour and gather? Are there meetups for authors and things like that? Yeah, I mean, I always just think social media is the best way up that. Good you point. know, just to, you can follow me on social media, and I am always talking about books and writing things. Yeah. So that, you know, I, I'm probably not the worst place to start. And actually, Seattle 7 has a, we have a Facebook page and a Facebook group that that anybody can follow. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, there are, and I, we also just, there's so many great local bookstores, and a lot of authors come here on tour. Mm. Um, so that's a great way to start and I think that what I would tell people who are who are aspiring writers it's a really good idea to meet other writers who are both who are at your level that you can sort of go on the journey with and then also people who are published and you know can be a good source of wisdom and so I would say 
you know, keep an eye on the calendars for places like Third Place Books and Elliott Bay Book Company and Queen Anne Book Company, wherever, you know, wherever is sort of your closest local, because chances are there are a lot of big authors coming through there. And if you think that their events are going to be mobbed, okay, sure, if it's like Cheryl Strait, it'll be mobbed. But a lot of authors do not get a ton of people to show up at their readings. Mm. And that is something that, boy, if I'm in, you know, some town where I don't know anybody as an author, which I have been, um, and you're one of the six people that shows up at my reading, like, I'm going to remember you. And if you send me an email, you know, so that's a great way to sort of develop relationships with folks and just also to support and to support the community that you're hoping one day will support you. So I think that's, you know, we have a lot of, we have such great bookstores that that's just a resource that's around. Also, um, Hugo House is a wonderful local organization. They have writing classes. They have, um, they have some series that they do. So that's, and also Seattle 7 does some stuff with them. So Hugo House is another great place. And I think if you're, if you're starting out doing some workshops and taking some classes is a really good way to go. You know, I did that for years, even after I was out of school. Cool. That's great. Yeah. Speaking of Twitter and Instagram, uh, Andrea's at Andrea underscore Dunlop. That is on Twitter. And then Instagram is just at Andrea Dunlop. Yep. No underscore. Right. No <laughs> underscore. Um, okay. A couple of key questions for you. Um, what are you reading right now? Okay. And uh, I'm going to throw your same question back at you. How did you find out about it? Oh. Um, and then, yeah, I'll ask you another one. Okay, great. So I uh, just just finished last night, actually, a book uh, called The Rules of Civility oh. by, and I'm going to mispronounce his name, but I'm just going to roll with it, Amor Towles, Sure, I think is how you say it. And actually, it is a book that, so I'm familiar with his work because, again, I sort of see it everywhere. Um, and he's his he has a new book called uh, Our Gentleman in Moscow, A Gentleman in Moscow, I think. Mm. Um, so I'd heard of his new book. And then I have a friend who is not in the publishing industry, uh, but who is a great reader, my friend Margaret, one of my bridesmaids, actually, oh. to whom my new novella is dedicated. Um, she just has been raving about it forever and sort of you have to read this book you have to read this book and then so you know I just picked it up at the bookstore and and I was I was in the mood for I was in the mood for something kind of historical and I always it's about sort of crazy rich people in New York and I really cannot get enough of reading about crazy rich people in New York (laughs) and my next book is about crazy rich people in New York Um, so although it's contemporary where this is this is historical but it was real real housewives style or you're still yeah, trying to like find out little, who the celebrity is. I want to know this celebrity. A little There's nothing classier than Real Housewives. <laughs> the Countess. The count- <laughs> Can I tell you actually a great story that I have about Please. Real Housewives? Okay. So my friend Margaret, actually said friend who recommended this book, um, is my, she, we watch Real Housewives of New York together, or we're watching the new season, because I can't really stomach watching it alone, because that's yeah. sort of not how it's meant to be watched. It's meant to be True. watched with a friend where you can sort of talk and make snarky remarks and just be like, what You is need alcohol like? involved. Exactly. Right. So, you know, we get together and we have sort of our, our marathons of it and drink some wine. And uh, and we decided to watch this season because there's this this socialite it girl who's not the person I wrote the book with, um, before you ask, uh, who's who's on the show. And so we're like, oh, that's so weird. She was like a real, she was the real deal when we were living in New York because we were roommates in New York, she mm-hmm. and I, my friend Margaret. So we were going to um, we were going to go home and watch it, and I was at the grocery store and, you know, getting provisions. And so my favorite, one of my favorite grocery store clerks there because I have like my neighborhood grocery store that I always go to and I always pick his line because he's really nice and so he's you know he's like a middle-aged guy he's, I think he's a grandpa and he uh he was saying oh you know what have you guys got planned for the night and I was like oh we're gonna you know boot my husband in the other room and you just watch watch them and he's like, oh what, you know what's on what's on deck what are you guys watching and so I told him <laughs> and he goes 
oh, I tell you that, Countess. And just goes into this whole thing. And he's like, and then Bethany Frankel's back on. I was like, clearly, you he's a fan. Yeah. And we had a whole conversation about it. And it made my whole week. Wow. Yeah. You never know who watches Real Housewives. You never know. It's so true, it's like sometimes right? Real Housewives, it brings us together. I walk in and uh, my mom is, or my mom is watching it. Whoa. Freudian slip. That was weird. <laughs> Your wife in, is watching. Wife is watching. <laughs> Don't live with my mother. Someone just called me and I looked at it and it said, Mom, I promise. Anyways. <laughs> Oh, God. We'll just, just keep it moving. Right. It's all right. So we can cut this wife, out. We can actually wife. cut this out. <laughs> so anyways. Um, I think that should stay. <laughs> probably. It's okay. Um, I, wa- I walk in and my, my wife is watching it. I feel like it's like this, uh, it's, it's like a social experiment. Yeah, it's like It's sure. just, yeah, you don't need to go with a lens of philosophy or psychology because no. if you do, you're going to just hate humanity. No, you right? just you just go in there for pure entertainment. Yes, so, exactly. Yeah. And so I think I would say my book, if you like The Real Housewives, uh, you probably will like All my right. book, my next book. going to tell Jen however, Jones, my wife. However, it's less contrived, mm. I will say, because I think actually that the funny thing about reality television is that at this point, it's more scripted yeah. in some ways for sure. than, than anything. And so I think it's, it's almost like less realistic than a lot of Got fiction. It. Sounds good. So. Okay, two more. More questions for you. Um, best book you've read in the last year? Oh, that's really, really hard. Okay. <laughs> What's your favorite book only of all time, read, right? Like, I, okay, that's, 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 that's probably, an easier yeah, one because easy. I've sort of thought about it some more. Um, and, and I only say that because I, I don't know that I could pick one of the last year that I've, I've read. I, I, I tend to read about a book or two a week. Um, wow. So, well, I mean, you know, it's... it's professional. It's what you do. Yeah, yeah. What I, do. I guess go. that's true. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I read a lot, so it's hard to sort of pick a favorite, but I will say my, my two favorite books, and I always sort of try and can never decide which one is actually my favorite book, but the two that I always name check, um, Atonement by Ian McEwan. Okay. Um, do you, have either of you read Have it? not. No. Looking so, it up though. Yeah. So it is a, it is a set in the UK, World War II, but it's a beautiful story about sort of you know, the, it's sort of around the question of if you make a terrible mistake that reverberates through the rest of your life, sort of how do you handle that? Mm. Um, and the other one that I love is Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro, which is actually a sort of literary mixed with sci-fi, which mm. I think we call it speculative fiction when it's fancy. That always cracks me up because if it's genre, if it's like, you know, has a sort of a mass market paperback, then we call it sci-fi. And then when it's like Margaret Atwood, we call it speculative fiction. So I guess <laughs> it's speculative fiction. Um, but that's a beautiful book. Also, also set in the UK. Both authors are actually British. Um, okay. And it's a school of children. It's like sort of a boarding school of children. And there's something different about them mm-hmm. you get to know them and it's very creepy very moving very interesting so those are those are probably my two yeah those are probably my two favorite and i love I, it i love both of those writers um ian McEwen in particular he's mm. he's definitely probably my favorite writer because he still puts out a book every two years or so um he is a very literary writer very beautiful sentences and sort of every page you read something that just you know as a writer you just oh that's amazing uh but he is no stranger to plot and writes things with these actual sort of thriller plot lines almost um so it's really you know like fun entertaining but also you know it's not sort of your it's not the sort of throwaway read it's the it's really entertaining but it's also like the good stuff so it's it's a good way to get both of those are they in your cart yet 
I, I'm, I was, yeah, I was looking at <laughs> Anyways. Um, all right. Uh, you want to ask the last question? Yeah. So every guest, we like to ask the same uh, question to, to round out our, our interview. So you live in Seattle. You grew up in the Seattle area. What We like to know what your hopes are for the area. So what are your hopes for the city? And then also, what concerns do you have going forward? That's a good one. So I would say that my hopes for the city is that and my hope for the city is that we don't go through, which I feel like unfortunately we sort of already are, that we don't go the way of New York in that we start off this vibrant, creative city that's very welcoming to artists and then slowly and surely push them out by, for instance, high real estate prices mm-hmm. that cater more to people that work for places like Amazon and Microsoft. Definitely something that everyone is talking about and thinking about right now. Um, so I hope that that doesn't happen. I hope that we're able to retain our culture of having 13 independent bookstores and a lot of writers that live in the area because I think those are the things that, you know, and obviously other artists as well and up-and-coming chefs and up-and-coming mm-hmm. folks of all stripes. Right. Um, you know, and I, I hope that the city becomes more accessible actually, or sort of that that trend reverses. And so I think in the, um, so, you know, really a lot of it is just hoping Seattle keeps its soul, I guess Mm -hmm. is the the way I would put that because it is a city that I really love and I have loved being back here. It has been really wonderful for me as a person and as a writer to be back in the area. And I think Seattle has a lot of good things in so many ways. It's a really welcoming city. It's a very tolerant city. There's a lot to be proud of as a Seattleite. Um, We obviously also have some major problems. I think the big one that comes immediately to mind for me is our homelessness Mm -hmm. problem, um, which I certainly hope that our elected officials will do more about. That said, I don't think we should all hold our breath and wait for them um, to do something about it. And there are some great organizations in Seattle. One that I would like to name check is Mary's Place. Um, I've been a regular volunteer with them since last fall. They are a wonderful organization here in Seattle. They have seven locations now. They just opened two new ones. And one Amazon just announced that they're yes. going to give them a spot. And yes, new. which is yeah. amazing. So I'm really happy to see Amazon stepping yeah. up. Obviously, Amazon gets a lot from the city. It takes up a lot of resources, and we've made a lot of way for Amazon in terms of, you know, making sort of space for yeah. their headquarters and their employees and sort of all these businesses that have sprung, sprung around around them. And I mean, I certainly South Lake Union looks nothing like it did when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. It was sort of, yeah, you, you don't know, go to wasteland. South Lake Union. Yeah. yeah exactly. And so now it's, you know, there's like a Tom Douglas restaurant every five feet. Um, so, you know, that's that's good and bad, again, as as I said. But I'm really happy to see Amazon stepping up. Um, also, I know Starbucks does a lot with them. They get a lot of regular big groups of volunteers out there. They donate money. Um, so I think the, the, and Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation also, like, and I say this because I, you know, run into groups of these volunteers mm-hmm. while I'm there. And so we're familiar with Mary's Place, but just share briefly what they do. Yeah, sure. So they, um, they take care of homeless women and families. So they started off as a women's shelter. The day center downtown is the original location. And then they've sort of expanded out from there. So I think one one thing a lot of people don't know about Mary's Place is that they also serve men. Mm-hmm. I think that gets kind of forgotten just because of their origins um, sometimes. But there are a lot of there are a lot of men. There are a lot of families. Um, and so, yeah, as I said, they have seven locations. And so um, the new ones are in White Center in West Seattle. Um, so they, they really, they do an amazing job of tackling homelessness from sort of all fronts. And so they really, you know, in addition to just giving people a safe place to sleep and 
um, a safe place for their kids and to, you know, to eat a warm meal. They really help people get back on track. They help people with housing and finding job placement and dealing with visas and just all of the myriad things that, that people that drive people into homelessness in the first place. And they really help. They make a huge effort to keep the kids in school and really give them a lot of support. And so they're just a tremendous organization and they really have a system figured out. And so I think that there isn't Fortunately for us in Seattle, any reason to try and reinvent the wheel? So I kind of just think everyone should just give more of their time and money to Mary's place, right, yeah, um, yeah. because they are—they're making a huge dent. And so they, um, yeah, and they're just—they're—you know—they're wonderful people. It's been an amazing experience for me working right. there, getting to know you know a lot of the the guests um, and the families who they're they're serving. And yeah, it's you know awesome. it's definitely taught me a lot about my own community that I didn't know. And so I think mm-hmm. that's you know, yeah. That's I mean, a big who's deal. gonna who's gonna go against? Kids and kids and women. Come on, you know, it's beautiful. You would think, but I do find it's interesting. There's a lot of misconceptions about mm. still, despite the fact that this is something that gets a lot of coverage. There's a lot of misconceptions about why people end up homeless. Mm. I think a lot of people, you know, and unfortunately, some of the publicity that's happened around places like the jungle, mm. um, you know, where people sort of get this idea that it's just, you know drug addicts and degenerates and sort of people who don't want help is the phrase that I hear a lot. Like you can't help people who don't want to help themselves. And that certainly is true of some people, but the majority of, you know, and whenever they do studies, this bears out, like the majority of people who are suffering from homelessness do not want to be there. And they are there because they got shoved off the bottom. They're not there because they've just made all the wrong choices in their life or something that's sort of their fault. You know, they just, a lot of people, a lot more people than, I think sometimes people realize if they're in a, you know, a position of relative privilege is a lot, a lot of people are sort of one, you know, car breaking down, missed mortgage payment, et cetera, away from being homeless. Mm. And so having had that one-to-one experience with people and just, you know, yeah, hearing people's stories and thinking like, I mean, I've had that, ex- I went into it thinking, oh, I don't have negative stereotypes about homeless people. And then as I was sort of surprised to meet some of these people, I realized maybe I did. Mm-hmm. Maybe I was less well informed than I thought, and so yeah. I think that that's been that's been really valuable. Yeah, for and for context uh, for our listeners, we actually so we interviewed uh, Jeff Lilly. He's the CEO of Union Gospel Mission. Oh, wonderful! Um, so another, folks, another yep, yeah, they absolutely. Do a lot of great. Uh, so folks want to go back. That was right around the time that they were clear, clearing the jungle, mm-hmm. um, and he speaks to exactly what you're talking wow. about. Like, um, and you know, obviously, he's like seven plus years in uh, to fighting this battle yeah um and yeah so it's a good interview yeah they're so, amazing and i mean yeah. they're they're right on the front lines yep. and so that's yep. a, they're sort of serving a different and i know that Absolutely. mary's place kind of coordinates with them a yeah. little bit yeah. to, to figure out sort of which but which he spoke to there. The, of the whole pie of homelessness yeah the yeah. sliver of people that just don't want out is right. pretty small right right, right. Um, and that's typically a dependency issue rather right. than a um you know i think if they were to get clean and mentally stable that would be a different right. scenario so right and we we have yeah. some pretty entrenched cool. things about sort of who deserves help that totally yeah. need no absolutely <laughs> i agree well that's awesome well andrea i think that wraps a, wraps us up so if someone if if there are listeners out there and they're still on like you know they're on their run or they're sitting in traffic and they're still listening uh we would love to give one of your books away um we will yeah. pay you for it so don't feel like you have to give it away <laughs> um so if you're listening and you go to our Facebook page and you share our uh, this episode. Um, the first person to do that is going to get a no. Let's do a drawing. 
You want to do a drawing? <laughs> Let's just give it away. We're just going to give it away. The first we'll get a copy of each of your books that are out right now. So okay. yes, the novel and the novella. Yeah, so we're giving. And one... I have I the the e- the uh, the novella is only available in ebook. But okay. I do have some special printed copies, so Love I it. would ha- be happy oh, to donate one of those for right. you guys. That's and of course, awesome. I'll sign both of them for you. Yes, Absolutely. that'd be fantastic. Love so, that. so yes, we're going to give it away. Share our uh, this episode so that more people can find out about your work. Um, and if you want uh, to find out more about her work, again, go to andreadunlop.net. On Twitter, she's at Andrea underscore Dunlop, and Instagram is at Andrea Dunlop. Andrea. Thank you. Thank you. You're guys. fantastic. This was so much Thank fun. Thank you. It yeah. was fun. You did a really good job. Have Thank you been you. on podcasts before? Um, I've done one before. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but you know, I've done some public speaking and stuff, but I love it. Well, it was this great. Was really fun. You guys are great interviewers. You asked really good questions. Thank you so much. Thanks. All right. Thanks for listening. Rise Seattle was produced and recorded by the very talented Brett Baird. A special thanks to Bravery Music for our intro and outro music. You can contact us and find all of the show notes and episodes on our website, Rise Seattle Podcast. You can also connect with us on social, Instagram and Twitter, at The Rise Seattle, and use hashtag Rise Seattle to be a part of the conversation. Please subscribe to our podcast and write us a very nice five-star review on iTunes. We would be grateful. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you in two weeks for our next episode.